KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com. Humanitarian claims of immigrant minors will now be heard in court. In San Diego, there's been around 50 unaccompanied children per month sent back to Mexico or their country of origin. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Mark Sauer. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The county's new board is getting set to tackle a climate action plan. It's just like Groundhog's Day. It has been Groundhog's Day. <laughs> I mean, that we just have to keep revisiting. And COVID shutdowns take a big hit on San Diego's arts and culture nonprofits. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to Midday Edition on KPBS. I'm Mark Sauer with Maureen Cavanaugh. Our top story today, a federal judge has ordered the Trump administration to stop expelling minors seeking asylum in the U.S., Since March, the administration has sent back to Mexico or other countries an estimated 200,000 border crossers, including thousands of youngsters under age 16 traveling alone. Joining me to discuss the broad implications of this ruling is KPBS reporter Max Rivlin-Nadler. Max, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. So this ruling by federal judge Emmett Sullivan in Washington, D.C., it requires the government to once again process the humanitarian claims of minors crossing the border alone. What does that mean? So under this program that was started shortly after the beginning of the pandemic in in March, as it spread across the country, uh, everyone, even unaccompanied minors, for the most part, were sent back to Mexico within a few minutes, uh, you know, as short as, as an hour and a half even, um, or if not a few hours. Uh, but it was a very quick process. People were fingerprinted, they were ID'd, and they were sent back. Um, and this led to situations where young people, as young as three, four, five, were sent back into Mexico, um, sometimes when they're not even Mexican, if they're from a Central American country as well. So what this ruling now says is that they actually will get a hearing on the credible fear of where they're leaving from, and they'll be placed in a holding facility before they're immediately deported. So we have 
across this country, as we know from previous humanitarian crises along the southern border, uh, several places where we can hold young people. Uh, these are quasi-detention facilities for the most part. Uh, some are hotels, but young people can stay there uh, for months or for weeks or months as their asylum case gets sorted out. The Trump administration used a public health provision to initiate this policy when the pandemic started. Explain that. So right at the beginning of the pandemic in March, the Trump administration used a CDC order, basically this old law that had been on the books for some time, to say that the government has the right to expel people who might have contagious diseases. They then basically applied that to the entire southern border and said that anybody who is coming who does not have authorization to enter the United States, who doesn't have a green card or a visa, cannot enter the United States, including those seeking asylum. And this was a 19th century law under which the Trump administration initiated the policy of not allowing due process of minors asylum claims. Explain the judge's decision regarding that law. Right. So the judge was basically saying that they had taken this Title 42, which is in a larger CDC code, and really expanded it into something that it wasn't, especially when it comes to minors, which is not allowing them to have their due process rights when it comes to asylum claims. So he says, you know, this is just making it a a much larger rule than it is because they're taking away large precedents of um, asylum law and, and basically other rulings about how we treat young people. Uh, who will show up at the border. And this has been a point of contention, like I said, for more than a decade now, ever since young people started showing up in really high numbers in the early Obama administration. Now, this action was brought by the American Civil Liberties Union. It was on behalf of a Guatemalan teenager. What argument did the ACLU make? This Guatemalan teenager was set to be removed shortly after they entered the United States. And the ACLU, uh, which had been looking for a plaintiff for some time to challenge this, uh, found him, went to a magistrate judge in Texas, and basically got a stay on that removal by saying that it would circumvent his right to have a credible fear interview, as well as his rights as a young person um, who's under 18 as a minor. So it went to a magistrate judge in Texas. The Texas judge agreed. It stopped his removal. And this larger ruling, which takes effect nationwide, it comes from this judge in D.C. who is acting off of the case of this Guatemalan teenager. And the ACLU's argument was you can't ignore this years and years of litigation just because you have this very expansive interpretation of a CDC subsection code. But the ruling as it stands now does not apply to adults crossing the border seeking asylum here, right? No hearings for them. For adults, there are other current policies in place which would allow very quick removal, even without this Title 42 code that they're citing. So um, basically, I think the priority was placed on, on the young people who we don't know exactly how many have been sent back. We have an idea that basically over 8,000 kids have been sent expelled across the entire border. That was as of September. And around in San Diego, there's been around 50 unaccompanied children per month sent back to Mexico or their country of origin uh, since March. But this is incomplete data because we're relying almost solely on the government and we're hearing from the other side of the border that there's a lot more people just being sent back or pushed back to the other side without any documentation. Now, what impact might this really have on the number of people showing up at border crossings seeking asylum? And after all, Mexico, Central America are racked by COVID-19. Their economies are really struggling and places like Nicaragua have been belted by multiple hurricanes. 
Right. This current administration has done nothing to alleviate the circumstances that people are trying to leave from in Central America. It's been just basically a suppression tactic, trying to work with Mexico to make sure that uh, it's militarized its southern border, to make sure that people can't make it to the United States. That's made great business for traffickers, human traffickers, to come and take people across the the southern border. So the basic um, idea here is that for the next couple of months, especially because of these natural disasters, the footage coming out of Nicaragua is horrifying. Um, People are still going to be leaving these countries and coming to the southern border and just basically pushing them back into Mexico is not going to solve anything. And finally, some observers say this presents a challenge for the incoming Biden administration regarding the rise of migrants at the border seeking asylum. Uh, What do they mean by that? Right. So the Biden administration is going to have to ultimately decide whether they're going to lift Title 42. Um, That's not going to be easy, right, because you want to do it in a way that doesn't lead to a rush on the border. Even if you're planning on allowing as many people to come in as possible to get credible fear interviews, that takes a lot of manpower. And a lot of these institutions have been kind of stripped to the bone under the um, Trump administration, especially the asylum system has been taken apart. You'd have to rebuild it almost from scratch. Uh, So that's going to take a while. So a lot of people don't see this as a flip of the switch. They're seeing this as a multi-year effort by the Biden administration. And there are some things that they might actually keep from the Trump administration that had even been formulated during the Obama administration that they'd want to see stick around, especially when it comes to Central Americans. Well, lots to see how this is going to play out. I've been speaking with KPBS reporter Max Riblin-Nadler. Thanks, Max. Thank you. KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating, and Air Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating, and air, and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980. With their fleet of trained professionals, Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com. Because we know how. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Mark Sauer. San Diego County is already working on another climate action plan, hoping they can come up with one that stands up to legal scrutiny. KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson says there will be a new perspective on the Board of Supervisors after the latest effort flamed out this past summer. San Diego County has already put together four climate action plans, each a spectacular failure. It's just like Groundhog's Day. It has been Groundhog's Day. I mean, that we just have to keep revisiting. The climate action campaign's Nicole Capert says the county has been pushed by the state. California law requires all counties to reduce the amount of greenhouse gas they put into the air. But none of the county's previous climate action plans survived legal scrutiny. And they've been defiant, I mean, purely defiant, um, and didn't care what the state law said. And so despite what the court kept saying, like, that's not okay, they just kept doing the same thing. So here we are. 
Environmental advocates say they've shared their views about what will work with the county, but each final plan failed to include their input. That's always been the crux of the problem. They really had their own game plan in mind, and so they were kind of having perfunctory public process, but they really, at the end of the day, wanted to continue to allow growth in the backcountry, to continue to allow sprawl. And if we're going to continue to sprawl, we can't meet state climate goals. One major issue is vehicle miles travel. That's how the state measures if greenhouse gas emissions are getting airborne. County officials have a general plan that aims to limit increases in vehicle miles traveled by locating new housing near existing services. But the county has approved 14 large developments in rural areas. Let's just stop pretending we can continue to develop the backcountry. Even the state of California has warned the county that those sprawl developments would hurt the state's ability to hit its 2030 goal to roll back greenhouse gas emissions. We need to embrace the climate change is real. Nathan Fletcher is a member of the Board of Supervisors. We need to embrace that we not only have a legal but a moral obligation uh, to have a climate action plan that addresses that. And I believe that early January, uh, this board will make a definitive statement uh, to that end and, and begin to implement no that change. comments or items to pull. So we do have a motion by Supervisor Jacobs, seconded by Supervisor The reason Gaspar for that shift is to tied to the, the election. Calendar. For the first time in years, the Board of Supervisors will have a three to two Democrat majority. Things are changing and it will not be business as usual. Superior Court Judge Timothy Taylor has ruled on a number of climate action plans and housing developments in the county. My hope is that as a board, as we move forward, uh, Judge Taylor won't have anything to do because this county has kept that judge incredibly busy over the course of the last decade, and we've lost every single lawsuit because we've had the wrong approach. That wrong approach has created financial incentives for builders to buy rural land and then seek exceptions to county development rules. If you can take land that is not appropriate to build housing and the general plan does not allow for housing, it has very little value. If you purchase that land for very, very little value and you jam through a general plan amendment, you can reap tremendous financial gain. And so we've fiscalized and incentivized folks to fight for decades to put housing in the wrong place. KPBS reached out to the Building Industry Association several times seeking comment. They did not respond to those inquiries. The trade group has successfully lobbied the board to approve developments that do not follow the general plan because they say those developments will ease a regional housing shortage. But if builders continue to push for housing in the backcountry, environmentalists say they have to compensate for the resulting impacts locally. Developers really need to take a look and see how they can offset all of these problems. The local Sierra Club's Richard Miller says if developments cause more greenhouse gas emissions, the people who build those projects should be responsible for balancing the scales. By doing some very simple things like adding solar, possibly preserving the land that's around them, building electrification. So there are ways that they can reach a net zero on a lot of buildings. Meanwhile, county staff are looking to build a climate action plan that will finally be resilient to legal challenges. That includes discussions with environmentalists. Joining me is KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson. Eric, welcome. My pleasure, Maureen. Environmentalists say the board just did it again. The outgoing members of the County Board of Supervisors joined together yesterday to approve another major development, Otai Ranch Village 13, located northeast of Chula Vista. 
So is this another lawsuit waiting to happen? Well, I'm not uh, good at uh, prognosticating uh, when it comes to whether or not there's going to be legal action. But I can say that the Attorney General of the state of California urged the county not to approve this proposed Otay Ranch development because he has serious concerns about the fire risks. He doesn't feel that the changes they made to the project were enough uh, to mitigate what he saw as uh, risk to people. And um, he also doesn't feel that there's an adequate evacuation plan in the event of a fire. So um, there are some serious, clearly stated concerns from the state of California that may or may not lead into a legal challenge. One of the ongoing problems the county has had in trying to get these developments through is convincing the court about its carbon offset program. Can you remind us briefly what that is? Sure. It's a pretty easy concept to to kind of get your hands around it once you start to look at it logically. Basically, what the courts are saying is that, look, if you're going to build new housing, if you're going to build new projects that are going to generate greenhouse gas emissions, then you're going to have to find a way Uh, to kind of balance the scales. You can't just build and add those greenhouse gas emissions to the overall total in the state. Uh, The state is looking to actually reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and uh, they want developers who who are building projects to be able to mitigate for those projects, basically offset any kind of an impact you have. And what the issue is, is if you put four or 5,000 homes or Uh, into the backcountry, those people have to drive to work, they have to drive to schools, they have to drive to jobs, and that creates greenhouse gas emissions. So moving the development further away from existing development creates a bigger greenhouse gas burden. And, And that's really what the state is saying. Look, if you do that, make sure that you can, you can balance for that development. Is there any way that offsets could work? to allow housing to be built in undeveloped areas of the county? Sure. The people I've talked to would say, yeah, they could. Um, But but the thing you have to understand is, is the burden is significantly heavier if you move the development further away from existing urban infrastructure. So those 5,000 homes, if they were built in the core of San Diego, probably don't generate the kind of greenhouse gas emissions that they would if they're built somewhere in the backcountry. And it would make it easier uh, for the county to and the developer to meet that goal. And I think that's the message that, that uh, state officials are trying to get across. And I'm not quite sure it's, it's quite penetrated, at least at the county supervisor's level as of yet. Well, what kinds of things might the new Board of Supervisors consider as part of a new county climate action plan? Sure. The new Board of Supervisors, of course, is going to be uh, dominated by Democrats for the first time uh, beginning in January. And uh, we talked to Nathan Fletcher about this. Um, He's fairly confident that the board will uh, relatively quickly say, look, if you're going to ask for an exception to the county's general plan to build somewhere in a rural area, You really need to carry the water on that and show that you can balance the greenhouse gas emissions, um, show that you can make sure that 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 is environmentally sound before they're willing to give you that okay. Um, It's not clear whether or not they can go back and unapprove projects that may get approved between now and January, 
but they will certainly, from January moving forward, likely have a different approach than what the current Board of Supervisors, which is dominated by Republicans, has. So is it your sense that most development will be halted until the county approves a new climate action plan? Uh, really hard to say. Uh, uh, there is ongoing development now uh, that doesn't require uh, supervisors' approval because it's in the confines of the general plan. There's a project up in Valley Center. Uh, several hundred homes are being built uh, right next to a, a major freeway, so it's right within services. It's inside the general plan. No lawsuits on that project. It's going to add housing to the county. Um, it's just going to conform to uh, what county planners were were looking at when they considered uh, the boundaries of their general plan development. And when is it likely that supervisors might have a new climate action plan in place? Um, that's kind of hard to say, but they do need to have one. Um, they're 10 years behind, if you will. Uh, they were supposed to have one 10 years ago. Uh, the state is trying to reduce greenhouse gas emissions back to 1990 levels. Um, and they need all the municipalities in the state of California to participate. So it's just a matter of uh, the county staff, you know, deciding on what they want to do. And, uh, you know, hopefully this time finding a plan that will stand up to legal scrutiny and then the supervisors uh, adopting that plan. I've been speaking with KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson. And Eric, thank you. Always a pleasure, Maureen. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Mark Sauer. New research from University of San Diego's Nonprofit Institute and the Commission for Arts and Culture shows that the arts and culture sector is particularly hard hit by COVID shutdowns, more so than any other nonprofit sector in the region. With shifting demands, loss of program revenue, donations, and funding, plus unprecedented cuts and furloughs, we're seeing an industry in crisis. KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon Evans spoke with one of the authors of the study, Laura Dietrich, associate director of the Nonprofit Institute. Laura, let's start with the staggering 95% of organizations reporting a loss of program-related revenue. Sector-wide total loss of $96.6 million, $79.4 million of that from programs. So admission and tickets, classes, etc. What have you found across the arts and culture sector in San Diego and how does it compare to other sectors? Well, in particular, arts and culture organizations are what we call high contact or close proximity organizations, right? So they are um, interacting with people on a regular basis. So they have a more difficult time shifting their programs online. Other nonprofits have been more successful at that. Although arts and culture organizations are figuring it out, but if you're tied to a building um, and people coming into your building to experience your art or your performance, you know, over 90% of the organizations in our survey um, as of September 1 were closed or only partially open. So they're just unable to generate revenue in the same ways that some other kinds of nonprofits are able to do so, especially because they rely so much on that 
face-to-face interaction. And artists by nature, creative and problem solvers, and we saw some quick pivots in the industry and a community that's pretty hungry for art, whether for healing or escape. And I spoke with Jennifer Eve Thorne of Moxie Theater, who had pivoted to virtual programs almost right away. We have had to be innovative in a way that I think theater hasn't been forced to be in a long time. And the the cycle of innovation for theaters is speeding up. And so what's really been cool is finding a way to continue to make art, to reach and educate audiences about how to access it, and realizing that this may be the solution to access to the arts uh, that was really missing and and making theater uh, something that was only available to a minority of people who could afford it. Are these digital or virtual programs sustainable for organizations? Well, one thing we see in the data is they are certainly an option. Um, and as the Moxie Theater demonstrated, they were able to pivot quickly. Smaller organizations in our research tended to be able to move their programming online or even figure out ways to do things creatively outside or, um, you know, in venues that were open. So in that respect, those organizations um, tended to do well. The ones that were much more tied to big buildings um, or, you know, halls and things like that, that's, it's just a much tougher scenario. I mean, if you think of even about Comic-Con, right? Comic-Con is a arts and culture organization, nonprofit in San Diego, a huge one. Uh, you know, they could not host Comic-Con this year. Um, they did a digital platform, but it was simply, you know, not the, quite the same, I think, as having all those folks in costume downtown. And the sector also saw what you had called an unprecedented four in 10 layoffs or furloughs. And in this industry, particularly in the performing arts, we see a major use of independent contractors. And I spoke to AJ Knox of New Village Arts Theater, a smaller nonprofit in Carlsbad, who said this was their biggest hit by far. And here's their experience. Our shows are our bread and butter. And so without those, without those events, we, we really don't have a, a, a way to generate that same level of income. You know, on the flip side, to employ the same number of artists and technicians and designers and throughout the course of the year uh, season, we, we could employ, you know, around 250 different people for various jobs. Laura, what's the impact here on independent contractors or shorter term gig style employees, whether at a place like New Village Arts or at Comic-Con, something bigger? Well, in our study, we saw that several thousand gig workers contracts had been canceled as a result of COVID-19. The survey respondents told us that. So that begs the larger question, you know, that's more unemployment in the region. And shifting gears to philanthropy and individual donors, you show that 65% of organizations reported a reduction in donor contributions. Again, here is Jennifer Eve Thorne of Moxie. And when this all first happened, there was an outpouring of support. And I think that as this continues, as our doors continue to remain closed, what I hope won't happen is that people will feel like they gave 
a year ago to support this arts organization because of the pandemic, because of COVID, and and now they they can't give again. And and I understand that that might happen because there's so many there's so many things to give to right now that are deserving. Laura, what did you find about COVID's impact on philanthropy? Are people still giving, but differently? Yeah, definitely. We see patterns of this both locally and um, in a national uh, poll that we just conducted with Luth Research, where donors are reporting about 50% of donors are saying they're giving their giving isn't changing, but the other 50% are saying we are changing our giving um, and we're changing the kinds of organizations that we're giving to. And in those cases, we were definitely seeing a fall off in giving to arts and cultural organizations and a preference for more immediate need kinds of organizations like food banks and um, you know health services, things related to COVID. So the other problem I think that organizations are having is Initially, although uh, the previous um, speaker talked about an outpouring of support, I'm really glad for them. I don't think that's been the case across all arts or culture organizations, especially those that are smaller, that don't have access to digital fundraising platforms, who really relied on face-to-face fundraising opportunities. They were definitely um, shuttered and sidelined and I think have felt a real impact in terms of being able to attract individual donations. And you're seeing that the impacts of the pandemic on the arts may stick around for a while, like with a reduction of demand, for example. What are some of the factors that will make this a long-lasting impact? Well, I think it's the same as it is for a lot of institutions, just figuring out how to open, how to open safely. The cost of reopening in this study, uh, the participants estimated the cost of reopening to be $65 million just to get buildings opening, functioning, working, um, and then to hire back employees who maybe have moved on to other um, to other opportunities for work. So reopening the arts and culture sector will be, will be difficult and will be a longer term thing than just sort of flipping on the switch and opening the doors. And maybe artists are also optimists by nature, but time and again, I see organizations taking the time to check priorities or work on things like equity. Here's Deborah Klatchko of the Museum of Photographic Arts with some insight to their approach to looking forward and looking ahead. So what we've been doing is trying to figure out what uh, a nonprofit museum looks like in these kind of circumstances. We've had to learn to evolve and think differently, not just about how we function now, but what we're going to be when we reopen, because any nonprofit that thinks um, they're going to be the same, only just with a delay, is fooling themselves. And these findings overall are really grim, but I'm wondering what else you've seen, like MOPA's outlook here, that can suggest some sort of hope for the arts and culture sector? Sort of the flip side of the coin of a a large disaster like this is that you have opportunity to innovate. And we have seen it all across the nonprofit sector, not just in the arts and culture sector, a lot of innovative approaches to collaboration, new ways of doing things. It's really kind of opened uh, up folks' eyes to the opportunities through the tech world. You know, I would say that if you just drive around San Diego, you can see that arts, culture, humanities are just ingrained in our city. They're a huge part of our brand. So 
they'll always be with us. They need some caretaking right now. They need some attention from folks that believe in that part of our sector that, that um, they need support and need people to give to them. I think for right now, that would be a great way to, to sort of hold off, hold the boundaries right now while we're waiting. That's Laura Dietrich, researcher and associate director of the Nonprofit Institute, which just published Culture Shift, Measuring COVID-19 Impact on San Diego Arts and Culture Nonprofits, speaking with KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon-Evans. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.